Welcome to Globally Speaking, a production by RWS. Globally Speaking is designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who is engaged in global communications. Our experts talk to various industry thought leaders to dig into the most critical issues impacting language and localization today. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. Now, here is the host for this episode. Hello, and welcome to Globally Speaking Radio. I'm Robert Jelinek, and I'm the Marketing Director at RWS Language Services. Today, I get to welcome Jim Compton, my own colleague, onto the show. Jim gave a really interesting presentation at LocalWorld 43 in January of this year, 2021, and the topic was the locale of one, and specifically the implications of hyper-personalization on localization. I thought it was a really great presentation. It caught my imagination, and I asked him to come here today so we could maybe dig a little bit deeper into it and have some fun. So I hope you enjoy. Jim, before we dive into our crazy topic today, would you take a second to introduce yourself to the audience? Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. I'm Jim Compton. I am a technology partner manager at RWS, and I'm super interested in just seeing the evolution of the language industry and how it intersects with bigger technology trends or just bigger global world trends, mega trends. Great, thanks. So it's going to get kind of crazy today. So I saw your presentation in a recent world on this idea of hyper-personalization and the, the market of one or the market of all. It really captivated my imagination, and I think we could probably take this in a really fun direction today. So for those who weren't at the local world session, maybe you could give us a quick synopsis of the idea you presented. Yeah. So speaking of these like mega trends, one of these trends that was really innovative at the time and fueled by the capabilities of the internet was this idea of hyper-personalization, which like back in the 90s, it would seem a radical concept that if you're a marketing person or a salesperson could sell to a huge audience in a one-on-one matter. That's what they mean by hyper-personalized. So target market of one. We see that today all the time, right? Like when you're doing some shopping on a, on a website and it's like, hey, you bought this a month ago. We think you might be interested in this also. Or, hey, you're probably running out of filters for your coffee maker. Here, we can send these to you you would almost think of it as like a a personal shopper experience, right? And that in the past was an extremely unscalable thing to to be able to do. But with technology, like we've seen this, right? Every person can get that kind of like experience. So that's that's what's meant by hyper-personalization. And I'm interested in the intersection between that and localization or the practice of localization. And maybe this is the the big question. How would you bring hyper-personalization to the table in a way that it could equally serve every single person on the planet, regardless of their geography, their language that they wanted to operate in, and their culture. So that, that was the basic thrust. It was meant to really ask questions and have people thinking about this, because I'm always thinking, how can we evolve the localization industry to be more useful and, and valuable? When I saw that, I was sort of thinking... I mean, marketing one-on-one is segmentation, so trying to, to cut up the population of, you know, the whole world or companies or whatever into some meaningful groupings. And this is sort of taking it to its extreme and essentially having seven and a half billion markets of one on the face of the earth. Now, you need some yeah. engine that can serve seven and a half billion <laughs> markets, right? And, and a right. big part yeah. of that, obviously, is language. And a big part of that is culture. And a big part of that is usability. And a big part of that is customs and payments and 
I mean, the list goes on. So, I mean, it is a mammoth idea to undertake, right? This is true in product design also, right? Amazon Echo is a really good example because I think a digital assistant like this really is a perfect example of what a hyper-personalization engine is supposed to do. But they're still quite segregated by locale, right? Like you're in Germany, you have a, a German version, and it's a different universe than if you were to come to the U.S. and use the U.S. version, right? They're literally different things. And you, know, you could say, yeah, that's fine. But if you're trying to create like an equal level of capability for everyone around the world, you probably wouldn't want to design it that way. You would want to make it instead to where you could be anywhere on the planet and the product would sort of work in exactly the, the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting challenge. Like, how would you get there? Do we actually want to get there, right? I've come to this as a real kind of like technology optimist, right? Like the way everything should work would be these intelligent, you know, assistants that sort of permeate products and communication and everything around us just sort of know what language we want to be speaking in that minute, even to the nuance of like, do I want to be talked to in kind of a cheeky way? Or do I want this person to be serious with me? I was thinking about this the other day. I'm, I have kids. My, my son is almost four and we're attempting to raise him bilingual. So I speak to him in English and his mother in German. So probably a primitive recommendation engine would spit things to him in German because it seems you know, he's, he's got a German IP address and he's logged into German versions of these e-commerce platforms and all. But I want him to learn English as well. So, you know, a, a primitive engine would probably not make that distinction or would rely on user preferences and so on. It's almost like you'd have to feed that engine tons of data so that they understand, actually, my goal as a parent and hopefully his goal as a child is to learn the second language. And so, like, you actually can't get there with a primitive engine. You need to almost be hyper-personalized in that context because in this context we have a child who probably will want to speak one language over the other out of self-preference or you know parents have different (laughs) hopes for what they're doing so basically the engine needs a deep profile of that human being to make the experience i guess both in kids case for the kid and for the parents the optimal one which is yeah yeah no the dealing with like multilingual households i think is in and of itself something that is a huge barrier if you take the approach of that there are such things as different locales, right? Like, I mean, you almost have to throw away the concept of the of the locale or this idea of like source and target language, right? And, and say it's all just permutations of human language, right? With different expressions. Well, what is it? I'm just wondering when you, when you say get rid of the idea of the source language, then I don't know if you heard of this example where two AIs, I can't remember who built them, but they were speaking to each other early on and then they learn from each other how to use the language. It might have been English, but it might have been something else. And then the researchers looked at what they were saying to each other after a day or a week or something. It was gibberish to a human, but it was actually a far more efficient, much richer language than what the source language started. So I just wonder if if you kind of, you know, you get away from the idea that this needs to be a, a language that's understandable by humans. Maybe it needs to be something that can actually take a humanly understandable form in the moment of consumption. That, that's the part of your presentation that really like got me. Because like, yeah, this sort of lingua franca, the true lingua franca of a recommendation engine, why does it have to be English or any language at all, actually? Maybe it's just bits and bytes or symbols or something more abstract. This is a really interesting question, right? 
And we are going <laughs> to take a little bit of a, a detour, but I think it's relevant. Okay. If you look at like one of the big revolutions in publishing, like electronic publishing, it was this idea of like component content management or separating content from form, right? Mm -hmm. And that's enabled all sorts of efficient, you know, delivery of content that you wouldn't be able to do, right? But if you think about it, some written piece of, let's say, English text, right? That's still form, right? It's not content at all. So how could you, I mean, and it's an interesting question, basically crack open the text and decouple English text from the content and the form. And you have to ask the question, what is the content? And it's kind of more like the idea or the feeling or something like that, right? Or the intention or something like that. And I'm really interested in like what Elon Musk is doing with his Neuralink company, right? This idea that you have some literally capturing of a, of a waveform, right? And that waveform, you know, with some kind of mathematical precision represents what the idea is, right? Maybe that's the language, right? Like the full language of human collection of all possible feelings and, and or intentions within the human experience. And then everything else on top of that is just some kind of, you know, presentation layer, right? That would include the language or is it in writing or like, is it cheeky? Is it even a language? Maybe it's just a delivery to your doorstep. Who says it's content per se? It could just be some sort of action or experience. Yeah, or outcome. I think it is interesting because, and this is just with like, as AI gets to be more embedded in the tools and stuff we use. I mean, some of the conversation goes away and it's just like delivering an outcome to you. And that can get kind of uncanny where you're like, Yes, I did run out of coffee filters and they, you know, they just showed up on, on my doorstep, right? There's not even a question, do you want these? It's just like all of a sudden your wishes are fulfilled. I don't know. I like I like that model. It sounds very utopian. It sounds like it might have some potential for having the opposite effect. I mean, part of it is like, oh, crap, I got what I wanted, right? Like there's there's almost a terrifying element of, you know, be careful of what you ask for mm. element that if you're too well served by these things, that the real risk is that you get exactly what you want, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, I, I was watching some podcasts with Elon Musk on it, back to your point of Neuralink, and I was intrigued by the way he put it. I mean, the bottleneck, is bandwidth between us and devices, right? So for me to interact with my smartphone, which is more powerful than any computer ever on the face of the earth in like the 70s, my interface is these two sausages on my hand called my thumbs. And that's how, you know, <laughs> th that is the upper limit of the bandwidth between me and my device. Now we're just getting into, you know, voice and, and things like that. But really, I think the idea behind Neuralink is to open that floodgate, is to basically link you right to the device and just imagine... If you could peer under that hood and see what does that language look like, it probably would look a lot more like waveforms and, and hexadecimal than it would look like anything you could actually tell, right? It's, it's just the implementation of that or the manifestation of that would be something that a human experiences. So what's so interesting about that is so much of what we can understand from AI is based on what we have words for, right? There's some kind of statistical correlation between this thing and this thing, and we have a word for what that correlation is. 
right? Or that concept like acceleration. And because we have a word for it, then, then it sort of makes sense to us. But with just pure finding these correlations, like there was a podcast that I had heard where there was this device, I think called Eureka, which was a room that you would put objects in and start modeling their physical behavior. And it would spit out basically these formulas that sort of can predict different attributes, right? If this thing's mass is this, and I I don't think it was like probably pure classic physics, but it was able to punch out some famous classic physics formulas and then all sorts of formulas that the scientists had no idea what it even meant because there was no word for the concept. So you think about that, like our world, the amount of words that we have even in all of our collective human language is like just scratching the surface about what actually is existing in reality that could be, let's say, predicted. And if you remove the need for the language, you can do things like predict things and no one knows how it's actually, I mean, the actual humans in the mix who brought the AI to the table have no idea how that prediction was even made or why it's true. It's it's a super interesting, potentially scary thing. It reminds me a bit of the series Westworld, Mm -hmm. where you have these kind of programmed people who have this sense of independence and then finding the script of the thing that they just read, you know, realizing, no, they're actually programmed. It raises the idea of free will, right? Because, I mean, if these things get so good, and, and language independent, but I mean, certainly it's interesting with the language component. How much of the randomness of life do you still get to experience if you're constantly nudged in one direction? So, for example, I'll go back to my son's example. So, maybe an e commerce platform would find that he's more likely to buy something in German language, but I'm trying to nudge him to speak English more. So, when do the commercial priorities start to actually nudge you away from other factors in your life that you may want to take in other directions, be it his father trying to get him to learn another language, or you just bumbling around an e-commerce shop or, or walking through a store and just stumbling upon things. And I wonder, as, as we go to hyper-personalization, where are we going with that? What do you think? That's a great question, because in the case of a company trying to sell to you, it's, it's still selling, right? Like, but it's this interesting thing where we become such prolific users of the technology that it's no longer about us like buying things. It has to do with our sort of human experience. And there is, you know, potentially a conflict of interest between what you want to do as a person or what you want to do as a parent, right? And and what a company wants to do who's trying to, you know, maximize what they're able to to sell to you. So I think for sure it's probably true people have just become more consumers in in general, thanks to how fantastic of an experience it is to buy things now. But yeah, what if it's in your best interest to not be served directly in the way that you want, right? Or like you say, you want or even would benefit from some different experience that's maybe not even like the, the optimal Exactly, a experience. non-optimal experience. Maybe there's utility yeah. in that for me. Yeah. However, yeah. I wonder if I'm being denied that utility, if I'm being nudged in directions so subtly and so efficiently that I almost don't even realize it. Yeah. It brings up this question of also identity is very much based on your experience, right? And if your experience is being reinforced and supported, right? It's in a way kind of making your identity 
pulling you along some predetermined identity. And I, I do think that's a really important thing for people to even disrupt themselves every once in a while, right? And go do things that they wouldn't otherwise do just to be more well-rounded, right? I mean, that is that is one of the things. I mean, there's a self-interest in the engine that's trying to, to sell you something to have you be as simple as possible, right? Like it's going to be easier to serve you if you are simpler. For now, I right? Think. If you take that into its yeah. limit, I mean, technology is going to get better. They're going to have a lot more data feeding these things. And at some point, they may not even care how nuanced it needs to be to serve you well. It can serve the most sophisticated individual just as well as the most simple. The most sophisticated person that just changes their, their mind all the time <laughs> is hard to predict. Yeah, you're, prob- you're probably right. <laughs> I feel like the language part of this is a, is a really interesting element of this, right? And like you say, maybe it becomes less important as it's just getting not to having a conversation with you, but trying to serve you, something like that. But there is also an element of, I think people really do now have conversations with these systems, right? I mean, very literally in the case of like your digital home assistants, it's designed to have conversations with you, to be funny and yeah, watching that play out, like I'm sure you've seen this. I don't know if your son is old enough to be interacting with the assistants at all, but like as a parent, watching that happen is really interesting because it's actually part of the teaching of your kids how to interact with other people, maybe. I'm not sure about that. But like, <laughs> Sorry. That's almost like education. I mean, they're learning how to interact with something. So insofar as they can recognize it's, which person's talking to, it's already creating a profile. You know, like which slang does this kid use or what kind of stuff does he or she like to order? You know, so, I mean, early on, these profiles are being built. And, you know, this is really interesting because and you were talking about, would there be more of a universal language that isn't anchored at all on any like traditional human language? It's like its own language. I feel like that's a real trend, right? I mean, certainly my kids, when they're interacting with the Echo, they're speaking to it in their own slang, right? Which which is super interesting and being very cheeky with it, incidentally, also, right? Like trying to almost like trick it, yeah. which as being a thing that's training the engine, right? Like you can see that having really a strange form at the end where you can really only interact with it most effectively if you're being, you know, sassy, if enough people are doing that kind of training. But I've also noticed that just in like, so, you know, Roblox, the game Roblox, this just went public, some massive thing. My kids play that all the time. And it has a super interesting idea of like, it's a culture that's creating its own language. Like I'm definitely seeing that. First of all, there's different sort of like linguistic servers. Like you can go on a server and it's like, you know, mostly German kids or mostly Spanish kids or Chinese kids. And what I've seen is all the kids kind of don't necessarily try to stick to something that's their language. Like at least my kids, they'll be like on the Spanish server and they're they're figuring out how to communicate without any like real training in, in one another's language, but they're using their own language in the system. So there is actually like a sort of a new internet language, like arising at least on this system. And part of it also is because the system tries to police the language quite a bit. I mean, it's a bunch of kids, so it's trying to protect, you know, but in doing that, having to bypass these sort of language filters, this just entire new language has arisen. And it's really interesting to watch. It also makes me think like all these systems being trained with like, quote unquote, natural human language, right? Like, what are those going to look like in a few years? 
when the language is now this kind of like hybrid language influenced by Roblox, right? Like I have no doubt. Well, maybe, I don't know. It would be interesting to see if my kids use that Roblox language outside the context of Roblox as they're interacting in the business world or things like this later on. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it actually, you know, becomes part of part of the language. And I know I took this completely off no, no, tangent with hyper, you know, hyper-personalization. My brain just went, you know, the movie Arrival, right? Where like the aliens uh, oh, yeah. talk in that like ring language. I looked this up the other day and there's like I, little flares off the rings and they have meanings. And I think the actor is a linguist in the movie and she kind of puts it all together. And I mean, it's almost like, you know, why should it be storage and delivery and synthesis of ideas be coupled to any one particular human language? They're probably all far less efficient than something else that, you know, an AI would come up. So, or, or kids playing a good game, right? <laughs> the thing I also love about that movie is this hypothesis that like reality is defined by the language, right? And if you're not able to time travel, maybe it's just because, you know, your linguistic schema doesn't support that, that <laughs> concept of time travel. And if you have a language sophisticated enough, it's like, oh yeah, of course. But it's kind of true, right? Because things become real when there's a word for them. I mean, in my own personal life, I found this true. Something that's like a, a mystery, something that you maybe don't even have any power over. The minute you're like, oh, there's a word for this. It's like this sort of exponential level of power that you have in the universe as a person, right? Like, because now there's a concept. But I like that extrapolation from Arrival a lot, where it's like, yeah, you can actually just like... <laughs> have science fiction level capabilities just by having a word or the flare. I love the idea of the, the flare and the, I didn't know that by the way, those like coffee ring yeah. <laughs> sentences that they would send out. Yeah, yeah. That was such a, so great. So back to hyper-personalization, I think we went way off. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. I had fun. I mean, what would have to happen? Like specifically from a localization language point of view, in order to weave that into an experience that starts to get close to seven and a half billion markets of one, I mean, yeah. you mentioned before this paradigm of, you know, target and the source and targets. My brain's thinking going into place that like maybe that's anchored in the past and maybe there's something else in the future. It, absolutely. I mean, and this is just true with, I think, localization in general. And I've, I've been beating this drum for like years. It can't be an activity after you do your product design or your message design or these things. It really needs to be baked in, embedded into your your product or your your campaign or your your business, frankly, right? And I think part of this would be, yeah, because you can see how this, and this was part of my local world presentation, just showing some visual examples how if you're going to build a model for like some hyper-personalization engine that captures all the ex experiences you want to provide, captures all the attributes that might influence that experience, and you know all the all the outcomes i guess that you want to be able to serve with your your engine and if you think that like language and culture and geography are a factor in being able to maybe like capture what someone wants or sort of you know profile them in 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 cultural time space right this idea of of taking everything that i might want to say or hear or not want to hear every cultural experience for me in in denver Right. And then take that thing that you designed and then go like, quote unquote, translate it. I just think it will never work that way. Right. Because you have experiences that I have that aren't relevant to someone else in the world at all. 
there are experiences that they're going to have that you're never going to capture through me. So I, I think you have to start with the assertion, I guess, that localization as a paradigm being this idea of taking a source and turning it into target will never get us there to this idea of like target market of one. I think you have to start with treating language and culture as something that you model in the actual engine itself or the, the business itself, right? It has to start there. And linguistically, I think that this is something that you know my daughter brought up, which I thought was a really interesting question and made me think maybe is this kind of how you could do something like this? She's like, is there such a thing, dad, as a dictionary with every word in every language? Right? It's like, <laughs> no, but can you imagine? Why, why not? Right? Why not like a dictionary of all human language or all human concepts? Right? The challenge with having that as an actual book is we don't really know how to encode ideas without some form, yeah. right? Like yeah. you look at the internet, even the internet, which should be by definition, this language agnostic thing. It's written in English, right? I mean, if you go look at like HTML, you look at source, it's like, I mean, even, you know, metadata, you would think, oh, metadata can bring everyone to like what they're looking for. Metadata is all encoded in English, mm -hmm. right? So you really do have today. And if you go to like Google and search for the word, I wrote an article about this at one point, search for the word kitten in like six different languages. And you'll see that the kittens that are returned are different kittens, even though I think the concept of a kitten is, is the same, right? It, I mean, everywhere. That goes to show you have an internet that's right now segregated by language. And I think this is still true with businesses. Businesses are, I mean, this is where localization is helping to bridge the gap, but it's also too late. Like by the time you've designed something that works, you know, in the context of, let's say, Silicon Valley, right? It's not going to work everywhere in the world. You need to design it in the context of, of the world. And yeah, what if maybe you do have something like a dictionary that has every word in it, every concept in it, and how would you write it? Well, maybe this is where like the waveform of what feeling that has or the waveform of what intention it is. That, that becomes the main thing that you search for and then everything else just sort of anchors on that. I mean, I, I don't think it would be a real physical book, but that would be pretty cool right. if you could figure out how to do something like that. It um, almost seems like the whole source to target paradigm is a bit analogous to the two sausages on my thumb as the, the bottleneck of the bandwidth. It's like, I think as soon as you are in that position, you can't be hyper-personalized or, or pivoting to that is going to be unnatural. It's going to be sort of like forced and pushing yeah. water uphill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you will have in the Venn diagram of concepts that were relevant to me, but not relevant to someone else culturally and concepts that I don't have that are relevant to someone else that you're missing. There is some kind of middle there, which is like this sort of happy accident of like a, hyper-personalization being localized, but it's not very efficient, right? I mean, it is, like you say, it's the sausages on the screen. And I think what would probably happen is the people for whom something was designed at source are always going to have a better experience than the people for whom that experience was quote-unquote localized or, or translated. It's just going to be worse, I guess, for them by definition. Right. So the answer... Is seven and a half billion sources and zero targets. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Seven and a half billion sources, zero targets.
Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Jim, I'm looking forward to your next presentations at Local wherever they might be. That was a great talk today. Thanks a lot for joining. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, an RWS production. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean. Check out other episodes on globallyspeakingradio.com, where you can also find transcripts from every show. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback, so don't hesitate to reach out to us by contacting us at info at globallyspeakingradio.com.